You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just woof, a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There was all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck, and today I'm honored to be joined by retired Major General Robin Fontes. Ma'am, thanks for being here. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for the invite. So we've got a unique episode today in the sense that you know, we tell a lot of combat stories, and this is a combat-adjacent story about being a lieutenant in a strategic situation and the roles and responsibilities that you faced as a, as a young platoon leader. But before we get into that, can you give us a sense of who you are and how you wound up in the Army? Well, thanks, Tim. I, I grew up in Idaho. My father was a former Marine. I had an uncle that was a career Army officer, and my grandfather had served in the 79th Infantry Division, France, in World War II. And so in some ways, you know, the military kind of ran in the family. You know, they would tell me stories about it, and they obviously enjoyed their time in the service very much, and they kind of convinced me at an early age that I wanted to be in the military. So about I was about 12 when I figured it out, and I was lucky that it was, in fact, what I wanted to do. I joined the Army as a junior in high school, as a private in the reserves, and with every intention of applying to West Point, and I did. I was fortunate enough to be accepted, and then transitioned to a cadet, studied Soviet area uh, studies at the time, you know, know your enemy. And then I branched MP, military police, and selected my first assignment to be in the Berlin Brigade, the 287th Military Police Company. I arrived there in January 87 and then left in, in December of 89. And then went on, uh, I commanded the MP company here at West Point, commanded the second MP company in Korea. And then I Transitioned to foreign area officer for Russia, Eurasia. I learned Russian and then went to grad school, did the Garmish thing and some in-country training, doing mill-to-mill exchanges between the Belarusian army and the U.S. armed forces. And then uh, was lucky enough to be asked to go to Tajikistan as a military representative as opposed to a defense attache since it was a temporary position and they were looking for somebody to fill the gap basically. And so I, I went there, it was right after the Civil War had ended, and they were still in negotiations about how to reintegrate the, the opposition forces, the Islamic opposition forces into the into the Tajik military. Spent about three years there, came back, was working at DIA when the, on 9-11, and almost immediately was sent down to CENTCOM to work in the J-5 there 
because I, I was one of the few people who had actually been to Central Asia or somewhere around Afghanistan. And so from there, I, uh, I worked in the J-5 there. Then I, I went out to Afghanistan for two years. I worked on the Khmer Forces Command Staff for General Barno as his Palm Mill advisor. And then uh, I commanded a provincial reconstruction team down in Aruzgan. And then I think I came back. I get kind of lost in some of this stuff because I, I came back for about a year. And then I went to Pakistan for three years as the security assistance chief. I worked with the Pakistani military. Then I went back to Afghanistan and commanded a regional support command in northern Afghanistan and worked with the Germans and about 13 other nations that made up the command, the northern command, RC North. And then came back to the States for a little bit and then went uh, to back to Afghanistan. I worked for IJC, the, the joint command there, the, the operational level command in Afghanistan. Came back to the States for a little while. Went to India to be the senior defense official, the first GO to go in there after uh, many, many years. And then uh, after working on that relationship with the Indian military, uh, I went back to Afghanistan to command Combined Security Transition Command. And then off to um, back to the States, I was going to go to, to Egypt and uh, was diverted to be the Deputy Commanding General for Operations of Army Cyber Command and retired out of that job. So it sounds like from Private Robin to Major General Robin, there was a, a few career changes and a few opportunities that yeah. few folks have had. We're going to talk today mostly about your time as a lieutenant, that experience in Berlin. But before I get to that, why did you pick MP? I chose MP because uh, at the time you couldn't, you know, women could go field artillery. That was basically, that was the only combat arm and aviation. And I, I wanted to be as close to the combat mission as I could. And since the military police had the rear area security traffic circulation mission, along with POWs, it just was the, it seemed like the fit for what I wanted to do. My ultimate goal had been to be a foreign area officer. I knew from my time here at West Point and having a lot of instructors who were foreign area officers that that's what I eventually wanted to do as my secondary at the time. But uh, I, mean, I really enjoyed my MP time and I extended it enough, you know, in order to go to Korea. But yeah, I mean, it was it was great. It was great, great jobs to spend my company grade time in. You report to Berlin in January of 1987, right? This is the era of airland battle, the Soviet threat, T-72s, the Fulda Gap, all of these things. What preparation did you have after graduation from West Point and commissioning to reporting in to Berlin? Same preparation everybody gets. I went to the, to the MP officer basic course, the four-week, or excuse me, the four-month course. And then, uh, then I went right to Berlin to be a, a platoon leader. And I think with any job, you, you just have to, if you're in contact with them early, you kind of know what you need to be prepared for in a, to a certain degree. But um, you learn most of what you need to know about being a platoon leader on the ground and, you know, with your soldiers and from your platoon sergeant. January of 87, you check into Berlin. What was the guidance you received from your company commander before being put in front of that platoon? You know, fairly minimal. <laughs> it, you know, it's... I guess the pep talk that you would give just about any new platoon leader is, you know, this is this is your position, these are your additional duties, but most importantly, this is your this is your platoon sergeant. Tell and he would tell me about the strengths and weaknesses of my platoon sergeant and of how he saw the platoon, 
and the particular mission that that platoon had within the brigade. So that, you know, and then go forth and do great things, kind of. That was pretty much it, so. This assignment, however, to Berlin, it, you know, the the renewed tensions of the 1980s in, in the Cold War, that's different than going to any of these other bases to be an MP platoon leader. What was your understanding of the strategic situation and of your platoon's mission and how it fit into that, all of that? Yeah, it was... Uh I guess the the other piece of guidance that the commander gave me was that, you know, this is, you know, we fight tonight. You you don't have tomorrow to get ready. You you need to be ready now, and ready to execute the mission to the best of your ability. If you get another day, then you're fortunate to have that day to increase your readiness. But we have what we have. We're unlikely to be reinforced in this particular mission. And, you know, we were a delaying force, if nothing else. And it was, other than being a show of force to the Soviets and the, and the Warsaw Pact, being kind of the guarantee to the people of West Berlin that NATO was with them, we were really in what we would joke is a dip mission, you know, the die-in-place mission, because we're surrounded by 20 Warsaw Pact divisions. So, you know, you take what you got and you and you do the mission to the best of your ability. How did Lieutenant Fontes train, motivate, inspire soldiers who know that they're dangling out? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, you can be told you're left dangling out and something can happen at any minute. But, nobody, you know, it had been so long since anything had happened that there was not a certainly not the sense of urgency that you might think if you haven't been in that situation because i think you know after this amount of time after spending almost 40 years of my life in the military you can you are ready to expect surprise but you might not be quite at the point where you want to be where training wise readiness wise you might not be at the point where you want to be at the end of the night when you when you you know your head hits a rack or whatever but you know we would do our we did monthly Readiness exercises, alerts, you know, we would do the regular field exercises, you know, individual and soldier training. Uh, we also had, you know, a law enforcement mission that took a lot of time as well. So we might get, you know, we the, our schedule was such that we should get two weeks of every two months to train. But sometimes it didn't work out that way, given all the other demands on the, on the uh, brigade because of this show of force mission that we had. So we also trained for parades that we would do in the middle of, you know, uh, in the middle of West Berlin to give the West Berlin people the confidence that we were there and also to demonstrate to the Soviets and their allies that we were, we were not here just to, you know, fall over for them or whatever. There were more aspects than just field training, more aspects than just combat training. It, it took a bit of a, a shift in mindset for us all to realize that that was just as important, these parades and manning the checkpoints and doing those operations were just as important to our mission there and and the picture or message that our governments wanted to send uh, to the Soviets as going to the field and you know doing an RTEP at the time, they were called RTEP. So, you know, you would go to the field, you would have a mission, or a series of missions that you would carry out from from your, you know, however it was. It could have been a combat mission or or patrols, et cetera. But there are a list of tasks that uh, that the platoon, in this case, that an MP platoon had to be capable of conducting. 
And so you would go out, you would get these missions to perform these different tasks. There would be an evaluation team who would then provide you with an AER afterwards of, of how well you did in completing the mass. You, you would get a go, no go, needs practice or, or trained, et cetera, on it. After hours, right? You're, you, you, you've hung up the duty belt, you're home. What was life like as a lieutenant in Berlin? It was pretty exciting. There was always a lot going on there. I mean, you're in the middle of a big metropolitan city. And I lived in uh, I lived in a couple of places. One was kind of a was in the city in a in a apartment complex filled mainly with Americans. But then I moved out and was in a in a apartment complex with all Germans in it. So it was, I mean, there was there was a lot to do if you like the big city and you go out to movies, go out and do things. There were always, there was always something happening. So it could be pretty busy. It could also be pretty enticing to get in trouble there too. And so. You know, we we did deal with a little bit of uh, – there wasn't a lot of misconduct in the brigade, but there was some that we had to deal with as well, because mainly because people would go out on the town and end up in trouble. While living out in town and, and interacting with the Germans, was there a sense of where the Cold War was at the time? Yeah. So right before I got there was um, – I don't remember. Well, it was almost a year before I got there was when Chernobyl happened. And so that was still very fresh in people's minds. And there was still concern about that. And then, but for the first probably year and a half, things were pretty calm for the most part. But the the West Berliners were very, very nice and welcoming. And for the most part, because, you know, otherwise they were totally surrounded by the, by Warsaw Pact and the Soviets. So they obviously appreciated having us there, but at least for the first year and a half, it, it was or two years. It was pretty, pretty calm. There wasn't. Uh, I mean, you kind of you get into this routine, and it it doesn't. You know, you you don't you you think you get up the next day expecting you know what to expect. So you think at some point that changed. Yeah, it, it did. I mean, every once in a while we'd have a little event. So uh, we had Rudolf Hess was a prisoner there in Spandau Prison. Uh, he died. He was the last of the. Nazi war criminals that had been confined there. And then, uh, you know, in the summer, I guess it was the summer of 89, is when things started to change a little bit in Eastern Europe. And uh, so we had to think it, I think it started with the Hungarians were starting to come across to Austria and mainly into Austria, I guess. And But it just started to, things started to happen in the East. There started to be all this uh, uh, civil unrest, some of, a lot of it peaceful for the most part, uh, but obviously something big was happening. Big in that we didn't see a lot of repression of that of uh, some of the in some of the European Eastern European countries. But this kind of boiled over the summer, and and spread outside of Hungary. And then in uh, I guess in the fall, we started to have it, you know started to know more was going on, heard more. Certainly, right across the wall in uh, in East Germany and East Berlin, there were a lot more demonstrations, not always of a peaceful nature, certainly in the way that the government reacted to them. And so we started to watch that a little more closely. And then when it started to, to you know, we're almost every weekend we had a demonstration in Eastern, Eastern Berlin, the brigade started to up its readiness and its alert level a little bit. Not not a lot, thinking that this would all calm down or they they would suppress it, right? But I remember uh, in October of 89, we uh, my platoon was on alert, uh, and I sent a squad to Checkpoint Charlie, 
there was a building overlooking the checkpoint, and they were on the second floor there to reinforce the the checkpoint. All all you know, six people there, just in case somebody tried to make a run through the checkpoint, because we knew that if they did that, I mean, because while I was there, people had tried to run the checkpoint or escape, and they would be taken out by the border guards or whatever. So we were ready just in case that spilled onto the the West Berlin side to react to that. But luckily. That didn't happen. But things had started to get pretty tense. And certainly the leadership was concerned that something might happen. And so we, we did that uh, job for a couple of weeks. And then and then the wall came down. <laughs> and it was, I mean, it was really, it was sudden. And it was peaceful, which was a shock. And so we, had, we were called in and... I don't. I. I think at least two platoons, maybe three of of the four, were given missions to cover. In our case, we were given a mission to cover three new openings within the wall to facilitate travel between East and West Berlin. In those weeks of increased tension, you mentioned the leadership had concerns. Did your battalion commander call everybody around and say, "Hey, this is what's going on. This is what the OPSO and I are thinking about," or was there just a sense? I think there was just a sense. But we did get together with the provost marshal and the company commander, mainly to make sure that we were all aware of what was going on, watching for any indicators and ready to provide reports up the chain. If we saw something out of the norm while we were on duty, whether it be you know a duty officer or while the troops were out on patrol within the American sector there, particularly the, the folks at the checkpoint, whether it be Checkpoint Charlie or Checkpoint Bravo, which is out to – which went through the corridor out to West Germany, everyone was on guard for anything that happened. We were also, the, the MP company was also responsible for the duty train that went out every night and introducing convoys, military convoys, into the corridor to then transit to Western, Western Germany or back. And so, you know, we have that interaction uh, with, the, with the Soviet troops. Uh, you know, if there was anything that ever happened, that was a... PIR. So, did you change your lifestyle? Did you change your habits as this tension increased? I won't say it was business as normal because it wasn't. We, you know, we were certainly spent less time at home. We were, you know, spent more time in the office or out around and engaging with different people. But it didn't. It didn't change. It didn't change a lot. I think there was still, you know, a thought in the back of our minds that the Soviets or you know, the or the, the Germans would suppress any of the demonstrations. And so nothing, you know, nothing was likely to happen unless it was, it got out of their control. And that's really, I think, more what we were concerned with was something getting out of their control and then spilling over. And then there being an unintentional clash, whether it be at one of the checkpoints or, or somewhere else. Did you have conversations with your soldiers or with your platoon sergeant about this shift? Oh, yeah. All the time, but mainly in the context of you know, first, make sure you're you're looking out for anything that might be out of the norm, particularly if you go to certain areas. Whether you know, because we all had to go up to Checkpoint Charlie during during the day or during or at night on patrol. Is there anything different as you go down to to Checkpoint Bravo, or or are you hearing anything different? in any of the conversations that you're having. Or, you know, even if they're having a conversation with somebody else, maybe one of the MPs from the duty train 
or whatever. Are they hearing anything that you could share with us so that we're all more informed? So that was pretty much it. The wall falls down. Where were you when it happened? <laughs> I was sitting in my front room watching the news, eating, I think, macaroni and cheese. Yeah, it was really, it was really kind of wild because, you know, my, my guys were up at, the, up at the checkpoint just in case something happened. It had seen, you know, seemed pretty normal. And uh, so I went home to get a bite to eat. I probably would have stayed there because I don't think anything was happening that day. And suddenly, you know, on the TV, they breaking news and... Uh, you see all these people streaming, streaming through the wall and stand on top of it and, you know, with champagne and everything. And so, you know, I got a call soon after that. And it, the interesting thing was we didn't seem in that big of a hurry. We were all supposed to come in in the morning. And so the party kind of went on all night. And uh, some people went down there to the wall just to, you know, off duty, went down to the wall just to party with them, check it out, whatever. And then the next day when we came in, we had we had our orders on what to do, and we were given responsibility for three three new openings in the wall to kind of do crowd control and make sure nothing there was no violence, nothing happened, no clashes between our folks and the and the Soviets in particular because we didn't recognize the East Germans, so most of that would be handled by the Germans or the Soviets. But we you know would definitely keep if there was something that would happen, we'd have to react to it. When you went in that morning, was there, oh, here's live ammo and hand grenades or? No, it was more, you know, we, we were ready to do what we would normally do on an alert. But we, I mean, we already carried live ammo being military police anyway. So we, if I remember correctly, we just, we, we went out in these groups, uh, but we were in our Humvees at the time. So I, we did not mount the cruiser weapons. We didn't want to start anything either. We we were prepared, but we didn't want to present a a threatening appearance. Uh, more to to be there as a sh- as a demonstration, um, but to kind of enable what was going on in a peaceful manner. Did you sense a major strategic shift, or was this just a weird occurrence? No, this this was huge. I mean, because I knew it was a major strategic shift. Because things had been happening in the East that signaled the disintegration of Soviet control of Eastern Europe. And also, there was this period of glasnost and perestroika going on in, in Russia, which was causing some some issues. Some I wouldn't say instability, but certainly a different atmosphere there as well. And so, but also watching the East Germans lo- leave their posts in the towers along the wall was pretty significant. You know, go from one day where they would just as soon, or they will shoot anybody that gets into that area to the next day it being totally open. I mean, you can't just, you can't just put the genie back in the bottle after you've opened the wall and let all these people across because there was nothing to say you have to go back now. And in the West Berlin or the, the West German government was giving all these people money too. So it was not – it had definitely changed. And if I, if I wouldn't have already gotten that feeling from some of the indicators with the East German Army and, and things, I certainly would have gotten it from the East German – the East Berliners who came through the wall who were incredibly elated, grateful, and I, I think for them it was more an issue of would this is this going to continue or is this for real? But it, there, 
the one moment that I'll, I'll never forget is when this lady and her kid come through and uh, they walked up to me and the, the little girl gave me a flower and the mom said, thank you for waiting for us. And I mean, if we ever had any doubt what we were doing there in what was potentially, you know, a die in place mission, that right there signaled success for, you know, I think NATO as a whole, us, you know, for why we had stayed there for so long. You know, these people knew this, knew the history. They had lived, you know, a life of being repressed for so long. And uh, it just opened up so many opportunities to them. It's just difficult for us to imagine, you know, the, this sudden windfall for them. It was, yeah, it was, it was obvious something had really changed. (laughs) When you reported in the morning after the wall fell, you're getting in your Humvee and you're headed up to the wall. What was going through your mind? Really just hoping that it stayed peaceful because, you know, other than, you know, in situations like this, it's very hard to give very specific advice. So, or a, a very specific mission, it was very broad, but you know, we knew what the intent was. The intent was to keep the peace and facilitate this movement and uh, and let this be a German moment. So it what it meant to me was that I can, you know, I can provide this guidance to my soldiers, my squads, but it was really necessary to go to continue moving between them in order to reinforce that guidance based on what the situation was. If it's really fluid at one place and maybe it's not at another, they may need a little more encouragement about and reminding about what the mission is. Uh, so we don't get caught up in the celebration. It's not our celebration to have. We're there and you can kind of take it in a little bit, but you can't become part of the celebration. You have to continue to, you know, keep your eye on the ball and, and make sure you're ready to to do our mission and, and keep the peace. Make sure there's any inadvertent scuffles, et cetera. It, that, and then there were a lot of reporters. And this was a time when, you know, the military didn't engage with reporters very much in the news media. And and so, you know, making sure folks weren't talking too freely with the media, basically, giving their opinions to the media as versus, you know, directing the media to, at the time, uh, USIA to, to provide whatever official statements that we had. Told the story of meeting the grandmother and the little girl and the flower and what was your first encounter with an East German or a Soviet troop like? I think my only interactions with East Germans, East German military was, you know, looking at them through my windshield or something. Uh, Soviet troops, I had had a little bit of interaction with them already because whenever we introduced a convoy into the corridor or if, uh, if an officer was in charge of the convoy, they would be the one to provide the, tr- the, the papers, the flag orders, to the Soviet soldier and whoever was behind the black wall, <laughs> um, which is probably the, the officer back there. But there wasn't a lot of – they weren't allowed to talk to us. So you could – we didn't really – I mean, we tried to converse, but they, they would not engage in conversation. But I think that one of the first things I noticed when I got there and, and went through this process was that uh, – they certainly weren't 10 feet tall. In fact, I think the big thing was they, it, it was obvious that they probably weren't as, their barracks probably wasn't as nice as ours was because these soldiers were not always clean and, you know, didn't always, didn't seem to be in the best of shape or anything or well taken care of. 
or pro- world provided for, let me put it that way. And yeah, I think that was an impression certainly that we all had because, I mean, you could see like the rings of dirt around their neck and, and stuff. And, so, and that wasn't all from just standing out there. It was from having the same uniform on for a week or whatever. Back to the fall of, to, to the fall of the wall. As days turn into weeks and the wall isn't closed and there's no armored thrust that's coming behind these civilians, what shifted in your mind? What shifted in company operations? I'm trying to think of how long we did the, uh, we only stayed at the uh, at the new openings for uh, a couple of weeks, if I remember right, because things started to calm down. Even the East Germans didn't come through at quite the same volume they had before. And, you know, basically what had brought this on, if I have my timing correct, is that Gorbachev had come over and told Honecker, you don't fire on the people, basically. And so we kind of knew that this was going to be the status quo. So now what? How is this story going to end, sort of? There was going to be this passage between the two. How long would this happen? Or would there be, would the East Germans or would the Soviets then call a, call a halt to it? But when it became obvious that there wasn't going to be a, there was unlikely to be an event at one of these openings, we then stood down. It was something I'm, I'm you know, we were all pretty aware of could go, could go bad, but it wasn't necessarily in the forefront of our mind. I think by then we were, you know, almost getting ready for, okay, what comes next? How, how do we, how does this become a permanent situation? How do we reconcile everyone's, uh, all the stakeholders' agendas? How did you and your platoon sergeant keep soldiers focused and away from getting complacent almost? Well, yeah, that's, that's always uh, a challenge, especially when you're doing the same thing every day. For long hours at a time, a, a lot of command emphasis, a lot of talking to them about the significance of the event and how important it was to make sure that this stayed peaceful, and that reminding them of the, of the role that they're playing not only in a significant moment of history, but also, you know, just making sure that this, you know, these are one of the whenever you have so much unknown in a situation, that's when you're most likely to have an accident that that sparks a a problem or a, a significant situation. And so, you know, keeping them attuned to, even though you might not see a lot of people come through, even though the East German guards haven't gotten back up into the towers, this is still a very volatile situation. And, you know, the importance of just realizing not only about the safety and security of the issue, but also the the reputation of the, of the United States military as well, and how we were so under the microscope by by all the media as well, and the gov- and, and our own government, how how much we needed to stay professional and focused. This transitions to steady state kind of operations. Obviously, still a hairy situation, but by the time you leave in December of eighty nine, what is your platoon doing? What are you thinking as you go on to your onward assignment? I think things were going, I won't say back to normal. There was certainly, you know, the, the old term we like to use, the new normal, uh, but back to conducting the same mission in a different context. And so it was still important to, to prepare, ensure the highest state of readiness, and conduct our, our law enforcement mission, our partnering mission with the, with the German police there in, in, uh, in Berlin. So, you know, things went back to kind of the old routine in a different context. As I was leaving, I, I think that, 
you know, it was, it was really kind of bittersweet. It was a good time. It was still a good time to be in Berlin and to see what was going to happen in this big changing relationship between the superpowers. And so, you know, it would have been a good time to stay, but, you know, it was time to go on to something new. When you left, did you have a sense that within about two years, the Cold War would end, the Soviet Union would end? Well, I think certainly we knew that it had ended in a in a context of it had ended and that things were still shifting underneath us. I, I couldn't say that I was so prescient that I, I knew it was going to end. But things were obviously had changed and it became sort of a, okay, how do we, how do we interact or how do we do this now? What is this, what does this mean for the long term? But not really having an idea, not having enough knowledge to really put together something in my head. You think you know who our enemy is and then you realize things are not as black and white as they seemed before. So it becomes a much more gray area for the future, I think. Your onward career takes you into strategic assignments, whether that's, you know, as a J-5 at CENTCOM after 9-11 or whether that's in command of Sistika in Afghanistan. But your first exposure to strategic environments and to major world-shifting events happens to a 20-something-year-old lieutenant. By the time you retire as a major general, what lessons from Lieutenant Fontes did you take forward? I think the most important one was that no matter what level you're at, you're still just a cog in this much bigger picture, and you never have all the information that you want. But based on what you know, you try to make the best decisions for the greater good or for the greater organization than just what's going on. You're not in an isolated situation. You're never in an isolated situation where it's just you. Because particularly now, I think, and, and certainly then with, you know, we were most concerned about the media and how not to mess up some contact with the media or do something that was going to ignite, you know, a firefight or something. It, and not just because of what would happen on the local level, but because it has such much, much bigger repercussions. And so I think that is what, that was the biggest lesson that I learned there. But also, I think second to that, would be, you know, this is a fail in me talking, but uh, just how important those bonds are with our allies and partners and their their populations, because it's nice to have their support. And it, only if it just reinforces what you already think, it means it means a lot more than we might generally know. But you know, that was something that was accomplished as part of a team and uh, the NATO team, you know, and, and we basically couldn't have done it without being NATO. It, it just wouldn't have had the same deterrence effect as it did. And then just being able to withstand putting what it takes into the mission to get it done. Well, Robin, I want to thank you for being here today and sharing a unique perspective on a significant strategic event you witnessed as a lieutenant. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.